Hello, everybody. Welcome to Latter-day Struggles. This is your podcast where we talk about things that sometimes people don't like to talk about. <laughs> is that a good start? That's a great start. <laughs> okay. I'm Valerie, and here is... Nathan. Hi. Yeah, we're back together, back at it. And today, we have finally approached and arrived at the very last episode of our study, our deep dive in the 2022 Strength of the Youth. And I promise this is actually going to be, it's kind of a two-part episode today, meaning that we are going to dig into the last two sections, although they are somewhat brief. It would appear that the writers also were kind of ready to be done because it got lots more vague, which I'm happy about. <laughs> and we're also kind of ready to move on to some other topics ourselves. So we're going to talk about these things, and then I'm actually going to um, jump into sort of a second segment of this episode and make a proposal, or at least I'm actually going to reference a brilliant thinker and writer and talk a little bit about the possibility of re-examining today's current emphasis on doctrinal unity. And so basically we're talking about all the doctrine through the strength of the youth. And then at the end of this podcast, I'm going to just push back a tiny bit about the possibility of considering that maybe we don't even need to as a church, we may not be finding our greatest strength in this emphasis of doctrinal unity. It may be better that we don't do that. And I'm going to talk to you about why. Okay. Mm -hmm. But before we do that, let's go ahead and hit these last two sections. The truth will make you free and finding joy in Christ. Okay. So why don't you hit it, babe? Okay. The truth will make you free. Your heavenly father is a God of truth. He is all knowing. All truth comes from him and leads to him. You show that you value truth as you seek learning, live with integrity, and bravely stand for what you know is right, even if you have to stand alone. Okay, that's the first paragraph. All righty. So, okay, well, let me just see here. So my first thought is I really like Okay. I actually think there's nothing in here to me that is bothersome. The thing that I think is bothersome to me is that they don't allow that to be applied to everybody how we see. So in other words, when we say, for instance, that we should live in integrity and bravely stand for what you know is right, as long as they are allowing everybody to stand in their integrity and to fight for what they believe is right, then I think this is good doctrine. Unfortunately, I think what's implied is that everybody needs to stand in the church's integrity and fight for what the church determines is right. You're you're speaking a truth, Nathan, in that I'm just actually thinking about we just actually interrupted our regularly scheduled programming to talk about the recent sort of kerfuffle. Uh, well, at least we saw it as a kerfuffle with the uh, publication in the church news of a talk that was really pushing back against those of us who are committed to advocacy in ways that the church isn't friendly towards. And so what you're describing here really, in fact, is, is saying if we are being counseled to follow our truth and our integrity, then we who feel to be advocates and to be activists uh, in what we feel is good, true, and right, that's a, we ought to be encouraged in doing that. Right. And yeah. so, you know, I'll take the paragraph at face value and just encourage everyone yeah. who's listening to find their truth, stand for the truth, and allow other people the same privilege. Right. The only one other little little pocket that I would talk to you about or that I have a, a, a thought about is I feel in some ways like this um, kind of ongoing narrative that we create about standing alone has a little bit of a historical and even current victim mentality. Martyr complex. It's a martyr complex. This idea that like we are in fact the only ones that, you know, you must stand alone to get it right. And we don't hold the corner on the market of truth or goodness. And so in many cases by uh, living in a uh, virtue and living in integrity, we are in fact able to align with many people of other faiths and of no faiths at all that are very, very different than us um, socially, culturally, and otherwise, we don't have to feel like we have to stand alone. Mm -hmm. This is very much um, a lower level way of thinking from the perspective of psychological development. Once we advance into higher levels, we see brothers and sisters everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. 
That's true. And, and it's also kind of funny that it's in there because I do think the church has actually made some strides to work uh, on being a little bit better at working with other people. So yeah, yeah, I, I would like to believe that we're moving away from, from the martyr complex. So we don't have a, a, mar a corner on, on the truth. We also don't have a corner on victimhood. Um, mm. Although we like to believe we are the world's greatest martyrs of all time. Yeah. So, you know, I think, I think we just have to kind of stop seeing ourselves as being so different. We, we are just part of the body of Christ and the body of Christ is not a, a church. It's all human beings that are, have ever been created by the hand of God. Well, so. I think what you're describing, Nate, speaks into this idea that we're special, yeah. right? Either we're especially chosen or especially persecuted. Yeah. And I think that's what needs to be overcome that, that we are in fact, all the body of Christ. And the more we see ourselves as like our brothers and sisters, no better than, or no worse than, um, the more we'll know that we are we are psychologically and spiritually growing. It's not a competition, mm -hmm. right? No, that's exactly right. Yeah. So. Okay. All right. So we'll move on here to eternal truths. Heavenly Father wants his daughters and sons to always be learning. You have both temporal and spiritual reasons to seek love and love learning. Education is not just about earning money. It is part of your eternal goal to become more like Heavenly Father. Um, again, I, I think this is a really good paragraph. Uh, I think it emphasizes that learning is about developing the, the soul. Uh, it's about making us more over in the image of our heavenly parents who are all knowing. Um, and I think it's nice that they point out it's not just about earning money. I mean, from a practical standpoint, we do have to have careers. Um, but I think from a much broader standpoint, we are here to be made over in the image of God. So I, I, I like that paragraph. I don't know if you have any thoughts on it. I, I did like it. I enjoyed that they did give a nod to the women by putting the daughters before the sons in the topic. <laughs> I know that sounds a little bit silly, but in a world of patriarchy where men are often first spoken of or the only ones spoken of, somebody went out of their way to throw daughters before sons. Or just slipped by the editor. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like it was intentional, honestly, because it's I, still, it's a little weird. I, like, no, I totally agree. Yeah. I, I like it. Okay. Let's move on to the next two. Living with integrity means that you love truth with all your heart more than you love personal comfort, popularity, or convenience. It means doing what is right simply because it is right. Okay. Now I want to speak into this one because I feel strongly about the truths of this one in a very sort of paradoxical way. Doing what is right simply because it is right is why I am sitting before you on this microphone today. And so this um, manual or this, I keep calling it manual, pamphlet, whatever, it is in some ways, this is giving me the validation that I don't necessarily need, but I'm enjoying looking at it and teaching me that I can stand up for what is right, even if it's against sometimes what the majority narrative wishes I would say and do. And I'm not saying that I'm even against a lot of what I, I see in this manual, I'm, I'm actually for much of it, but I'm going to speak my truth and speak the inconvenient truth because it is in keeping with who I'm trying to be as an integrity-based child of God. So, yeah, no, I, I think this is a common theme through a lot of these um, things that we've read, which is, I think the, the wording here is terrific. I just think sometimes they expect that we will interpret it a certain way in a very narrow-minded way. What I'm reading here is something that gives a, a broad interpretation of, of your own personal integrity and your truth and the way you see the world and, and even the ability for that to change over time and evolve. And so, you know, as, as long as we are really holding to the context of the actual words here, I think this is very true. Right. And I think one of the, one of you listeners out there, we had a little bit of a conversation between one of this, one of these episodes. And this person said something like, Wow, it sounds in some ways like as I'm studying this along with you in these episodes, a lot of what is said is truth. It's just that the people are interpreting it wrong. Like it's our fault. And I, I push back a little bit um, on that only because the reason why it's being interpreted incorrectly is because it's actually in other places very commonly being taught incorrectly. Yeah. Like if you take some of these these principles and and were to listen to, say, for example, general conference talks or state conference talks or what's being sort of taught more generally in terms of when it's not vague, I think when principles are taught in a way that is vague and people are able to apply them according to their experience, what feels right to them, generally you don't go wrong. But the more prescriptive it gets, which oftentimes it does get prescriptive, uh, the more we get into trouble. So I don't think it's like, I don't also like this idea that when we don't agree or when there's something that um, comes up that's different than what we're seeing, that somehow it is our fault. 
<laughs> right. At, right. I mean, I think yeah. that's really kind of been baked into if, if you have, if, if you're feeling a certain way, you have a problem. Yeah. It's not something that's sort of an institutional problem. I'm not saying that we never have a problem because we are wounded and human and we have problems. And sometimes we take things incorrectly and we don't, we don't understand, but I don't like the idea that we always scapegoat the institution and the church mm-hmm. and the leadership, because I don't think that's correct either. No, I, I totally agree. Um, and, you know, I, to build on that, I, I want to give the church credit for creating a pamphlet that is much more open-minded than you know anything we've ever seen. I, I still think there are some things in here that I don't agree with, but I have to say that this is a step in the right direction. Uh, I've heard two different instances of people saying, well, gosh, this is too vague. We need to go back and, and use the old strength of the youth in order to teach our youth so we can give them more specific guidelines. And um, you know, one of those was actually from Brad Wilcox, who basically said, um, you know, just because it's not in the new pamphlet doesn't mean that the old standards don't still apply. And, and I'm thinking, no, Brad, <laughs> pay attention to what the brethren are actually trying to do here. They're trying to hand some of the agency back to the youth and their parents. Uh, and so I do agree with that. I, I like that very much. Okay, next paragraph says, you have something precious to share. The gospel of Jesus Christ holds the answers to life's questions. It is the way to peace and happiness. You may not know everything, but you know enough to help others understand and value true eternal principles. Okay, so again, I I like this paragraph kind of at face value. I I do think that there are a couple things here that um, maybe we should dive into a little bit. Um, I, I do personally think that the gospel of Jesus Christ does provide some answers to some of the questions that we have about, you know, where did we come from? What is our purpose here? What is our eternal potential? Uh, and I do think that that is, is absolutely true. But I think you have to be a little careful that assuming only Christians or even members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints have an understanding of, of the value of life or the, or the potential in life, the potential to love or even be made over in the image of God. Because the more I've learned, the more I've seen that in a lot of different places. And so for, for me, that's one thing I would be a little careful of. I, again, I don't want to ever create in my own mind this air of superiority because I have right beliefs and other people don't. Go ahead. Yeah, I, I agree. I think it just really depends on it's a semantics question. What is the gospel of Jesus Christ? Because if we're talking about the doctrines as are taught in our little itty bitty church, right. <laughs> then I I disagree that we have most or even much of the truth. I believe that the teachings of Jesus Christ or the teachings of of God in general, our makers, mm-hmm. are spread throughout the entirety of the of the world. Absolutely. And so, and do those things as we search for those things and come to a, a knowledge of what it means to be beloved. Do we find peace through those things? Yes. Do we find peace through dogma? No, (laughs) we don't find peace through a prescribed way of living that is dictated by an institution. Now, are there things in institutions that can be helpful? Yes. But when we talk about um, ours is the way, the truth, truth and the light, I don't agree with that. And furthermore, some of our own doctrines and teachings do not bring peace or happiness. Mm-hmm. They bring a lot of, of, of anguish and suffering to people. So once again, if we can speak in big, broad, expansive terms about what uh, the Christ mystery can speak to us about the atonement of Jesus Christ and the everlasting nature of love mm-hmm. from God, yes, that does have all of the answers. So if you can read it with those kinds of um, perspectacles on, mm. with that perspective... Wow. <laughs> then yes, that uh, the answer is yes. But I think once again, if we are looking through it from a smaller perspective with our own blinders that come from our own perspective here in this faith tradition, uh, that does not necessarily um, ring true to me. It's mm. just not big enough. It's not to say mm. it's not there. There isn't aren't things there. It's just not enough. And sometimes it does not, it isn't helpful because I don't think we have everything right. Terrific. Yeah. Yeah, I I think the influence of Jesus Christ has been felt through all peoples and all cultures, um, even if they haven't known his name, what Richard Rohr referred to as the anonymous Christ. Uh, And so I I love that. I also love the word you just coined. I I will definitely use that in a sentence at some time in the future. I don't think I coined that. I think I read that somewhere, but it's Ah, a good word, right? Yeah, I love it. Okay. Yeah. 
Okay, invitations, always be learning. Look for opportunities to expand your mind and your skills. These opportunities can include formal education at school or vocational training, as well as informal learning from sources you trust. Involve the Lord in your efforts, and he will guide you. As you learn about the world around you, also learn about the Savior who created the world. Study his life and teachings. Make seminary, institute, and personal gospel study part of your lifelong learning. Uh, I think in general, I like this paragraph. I, I really do. I, I, I like that we're talking about um, the, what we would call secular education, what we call spiritual education. Of course, they're all the same, right? There's n nothing is really secular to God. Um, I like how they're giving permission for people to not go to college. Um, I think that it is a perfectly appropriate to say, hey, if you found a skill set and, and, and this is where you want to work, there, there's nothing more noble about being a, a good doctor than there is about being a good mechanic. And I absolutely appreciate that they're kind of opening that door to letting people follow their their talents and their interests and their skills. So I I like much of this and I with you, I'm really grateful that they added vocational or other kinds of training in because I think once again, once we start creating a menu of options that are acceptable and we turn it into something that looks like a, a, a Western mid to upper class mm -hmm. kind of life that is right. the acceptable life that God wants for us, we're really missing the mark. Right. And so I think that's good. The other thing that I'm just, I'm just questioning a little bit, Nathan, and you can tell me how you think about this is, mm -hmm. well, we're going to talk in a minute with my second half of this podcast, we're going to definitely talk about Jesus's life and teachings. I'm, that's going to, we're going to go way deeper there, but I'm wondering about, okay, on the one hand, make seminary Institute and personal gospel study, part of your lifelong learning. I love the, the, the personal gospel study. That's very vague. And I do believe that it feels to me like an, a nice invitation to have a personalized way to be in connection with um, learning about God and Jesus Christ. I'm, I'm wondering about, does, does this feel like a, a bit of a mandate about seminary and institute? Or is it more, because if it's a suggestion because it's helpful, then that's, that could, because it can be helpful, then I have no problem with that. I just, once again, don't like how I've seen on the ground that some youth and young adults, especially, I guess, youth, really, if if their life cannot accommodate for any number of reasons, say, for example, early morning seminary, mm -hmm. they feel shame. Sure. They feel bad about themselves. So maybe better wording could say consider seminary and institute as part of your lifelong gospel study. Once again, yes. If it If it has to do, if it's more about these are some options that have been helpful for some, but this is not the the thing that you have to do to be okay. Mm -hmm. And once again, we sometimes, I think in the church, we do have the checklist. And I think seminary is sometimes one of those checklist items yeah. for, for youth. And it doesn't feel good to them if I don't, I don't, for any number of reasons why it doesn't fit into their lives. Yeah. I, I think it's a good point. I yeah. like what you're saying there. Okay. Okay. Next paragraph says, love the truth so much that you would never want to steal, lie, cheat, or deceive in any way at school, at work, online, everywhere be the same faithful follower of jesus christ in public and in private uh, again i like this paragraph I, I i think it is fair to generally prescribe as truth capital t truth that we should be honest and forthright and that our public and private behaviors should be the same i i i see that as being truth capital t what, what's your thought i agree with it 100 percent. but it was a little triggering to me because our institution has issues with honesty Oh yeah. So that's my only, my only discomfort with this topic. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I go back to the words are right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so, um, be a light for others. Let your words and your actions reflect your faith in Jesus Christ. Prepare now for future opportunities to share his glorious gospel as a missionary and throughout your life. Be ready to tell anyone who asks you about the hope and happiness you feel. Okay. May not be quite as on board with this paragraph. I, I do think that for me personally, when I feel close to, to God and feel close to Jesus Christ, that I probably do feel a, a happiness in my life. And I'm certainly willing to tell people about that. I hate the prescription that it has to be as a missionary. We've talked about that before. Um, I don't think that that is something that should be described as, as a, you know, or implied as it is in this case, as a mandatory part of how that should look. So that's the first thing that kind of jumps out at me. What What do you think? What are your thoughts? Well, I've never been more committed to forwarding 
my beliefs in and love for my Savior, Jesus Christ, than I am right now. Does that look like missionary work of yesteryear? No. So the question I think has to be, is this more about emanating the light of God through the life I'm trying to live and the choices I'm making, or is it more about evangelizing for a church? Sure. Because I used to spend a lot of time really, really evangelizing for, and I'm marketing Mm -hmm. for the church. Like it was a, like I was trying to push a product. Mm -hmm. I am no longer interested in pushing a product at all. Right. Like for example, our family last night went out. um, We've done this a few times. We're getting more and more involved in the homeless community here in the Kansas city area that had, that filled my soul. And it brought me both deep wells of love and gratitude and deep wells of, of sorrow. Mm. And for me, that is the way that I am not only trying to be a light for others, but experiencing what it means to have others be a light to me, where I am sharing in this experience of living and being with other people. Mm-hmm. and learning from them and and growing. And so for me, the more I am um, integrating myself into that kind of work and loving and caring and serving, that to me has, that's, if you want to call that missionary work, mm-hmm. <laughs> then fine. But to me, it's less about growing a brand right. or growing the the church. And if I can help people in whatever way I can find peace, happiness, healing, then that that to me is something that I can get behind. That's the way I, ch- I, I choose to see be a light to others. Mm-hmm. That's a really good point. I mean, when we were there last night, there were really kinds of three groups of people. There were people from the LDS faith tradition. There were people from a, a missionary Baptist church downtown. And then there were the actual homeless that were coming to uh, take the food and clothing that were provided. But among the people that were serving... The Baptists brought way more to the to that party last night. They brought the food. They brought the majority of the clothing. In fact, our family brought some things. But if it wasn't for that, the LDS church would have brought nothing except volunteers. And when I saw the people from the Missionary Baptist Church, I went to them. I, I went to each of them individually and thanked them for what they had done and what they had brought. And in my mind, it wasn't me trying to convert them to the LDS faith. It was me saying, you tonight have been the great light. You have been... The, the great servants who did the bulk of the heavy lifting to make this night possible. So I, I felt connected with them, not superior to them. Mm-hmm. And I didn't feel like I needed to convert them to anything. I just wanted to join with them in the great love and charity that they had brought to that evening last night. Yeah. I wouldn't even want to convert them. No. I was, I was so touched by, by just being able to be with them and learn from them. And their, their spirit was beautiful. Yeah. Both the other, um, the other congregants from this, this other institution and, and, and the, the folks that we got to just hang out with mm-hmm. and eat with and spend time with. Yeah, so they were beautiful people too. So yeah. Okay. Promise blessings. We'll go on and talk about a couple of things here. Education increases your ability to serve the Lord. It empowers you to bless others, especially your family. The more you learn, the more you can help build God's kingdom and influence the world for good. I love that. As long as you consider God's kingdom, the whole world. Amen. If we can say God's kingdom is every person that lives on this planet and anything that I do that blesses anybody's lives without evangelizing, but just saying we're going to make the world a more loving place, then I can agree with everything in that paragraph. I like to refer back to, I don't remember the verse, but you probably will. The kingdom of God is within. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I don't remember the reference off the top of my head. Okay. Well, shame on you. Well, Okay. (laughs) You brought it up. (laughs) But you you tend to be more of the scriptorian than I am. So yeah, Yeah. I don't even expect myself to know these scriptures. Anyhow, be that as it may, if we can look into the eyes of other people and be lifting them up and helping them come closer to their divine parents and their savior, just through our lives, our love, our example, our openness, our curiosity, then that I think that's God's kingdom. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. It, 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 I mean, Jesus Christ did say the kingdom of God is within you, but the kingdom of God is also that body of Christ, which is everything that God has ever created, ever will create, and everything in between. Um, honesty brings peace and self-respect. When your words and actions align with truth, you show that you can be trusted by other people and by the Lord. Okay, again, I generally agree with this. I, I think when we're honest and living on our own integrity, we are happier people. Yeah, I agree. And what we're doing here again on this podcast is our expression of integrity and honesty. So it, it's not always going to necessarily be validated our trying to um, be honest and and self-respecting. But I think that's what, as we grow, we just have to become 
a little firmer and a little more okay with not necessarily being validated by by those who may not be benefiting by our self-respect and honesty sometimes. Yeah. And I think we part of it is that we need to be okay with other people who have different opinions than us. If somebody at church says something and, and we don't see it the same way, we should be able to say if that person is actually talking within their own integrity, then we should respect whatever that point of view is. Um, next paragraph says, when you stand up for the teachings of Jesus Christ, he stands with you. Others may not agree with you, but your courage and sincerity will be noticed. Whether or not others follow your example, your testimony, confidence, and faith in Christ will grow. Um, so the only little problem I have with that paragraph is that it implies that when we do something difficult, then Jesus Christ is our friend. Then he's got our back. And, and to me, that's, again, uh, we've talked about this umpteen times, but I believe that God and Jesus Christ, Father and Mother and Christ, always have our back. Um, and it's not dependent on our choices that we make. Um, I do believe that when we act in our integrity, we feel closer to our, our heavenly parents, but I don't believe that it's an if-then proposition. The one thing I would say about this that I I struggled a little bit with is it leads with the negative. Others may not agree with you, but mm -hmm. once again, our faith tradition has a bit of a victim complex. <laughs> It's assuming that right. we are going to be disagreed with. We're going to be persecuted. And on the one hand, I think that once again, it shows sort of our trauma history. On the other hand, this may also speak into some of our current social issues where we are pushing up against something and we are, in my opinion, on the wrong side of truth. Mm -hmm. But there's a defensiveness um, institutionally that somehow we're on the right side of truth and the rest of the world is wrong. To me, it feels like they're defensive. It really brings to mind, too, for me, this idea that, like, is the gospel good news or is it not? Because this feels in some ways like there's been several sections where it's like, this is going to be hard. This is going to suck. You're going to be persecuted. You're going to be sad. You're going to be alone. <laughs> and, and in my mind, I'm thinking, I don't know that I actually experience my own relationship with Jesus Christ and what I, the, what I am forming as my own theology as frightening, negative, lonely. Mm -hmm. as, as a matter of fact, if anything, it's becoming more loving, more expansive, more open, more charitable, more compassionate. I don't feel any of these needs to be defensive in these ways. So, oh, you know. That's a really good point. Yeah. Thank you. Leading from the, the position of defensiveness. Let's hit questions and answers. Number oh, one. I'm, I'm trying to jump ahead. Oh, I'm I? sorry. Go for it. Is it wrong to have questions about the church and how can I find answers? It says having questions is not a sign of weakness or a lack of faith. Good. I, yeah. And so where is that during general conference? Because <laughs> all I remember hearing is doubt your doubts before you this and don't don't talk to doubters and don't research things outside of, uh, you know, approved church sources. Uh, and yet this is really quite good. Having questions is not a sign of weakness or a lack of faith. In fact, acting, asking questions can help build faith. The restoration of the gospel started when a 14-year-old Joseph Smith asked questions with faith. And, and mind you, Joseph Smith went to a bunch of different meetings, and he talked to a bunch of different people, and he read the Bible. Joseph looked for answers everywhere. I've brought this up many, many times when people have said, oh, you can't, you know, you can't doubt, you know, you can't have doubts, and, and uh, it's wrong to ask questions, and don't talk to people outside of the faith. It's like, really? Because that's not how Joseph did it. Uh, and, and I think Joseph was right in the way he approached things. So um, I think we do look for answers in the scriptures. It goes on to say that we should listen to God's prophets, which I agree with. I think we can also listen to those things with a discerning eye. Don't listen with your eye. Uh, with a discerning ear, we can look at them with a discerning eye. And we should also listen to what other good people say. There are a lot of good people out there. I just listened to a podcast where Terrell Givens talked about his favorite uh, his favorite scholars to read on spiritual issues, and he named George MacDonald and Teresa of Avila, neither of whom are LDS. And so I give credit to Terrell Givens for having the, the foresight to look and say that there are great, great spiritual minds outside of the church that we can uh, read and, and learn from. So, Okay, why don't we go ahead and read the last section? How can I stand up for what is right uh, without offending those who have different beliefs? 
Start by making sure your words and actions are inspired by love for God and his children. Sharing the gospel should not be done in a spirit of contention, but rather with clarity, meekness, and kindness. You can be loving towards others, even if you don't agree with their views. Why don't you take that one? Yeah, well, I mean, once again, I feel like in some ways it is assuming that there is going to be conflict between parties, but that comes from the territorial nature of our our faith tradition and our history. Once again, I, because of, well, let me say it this way. I used to be someone who felt um, uncomfortable with, or like I wanted to share the way I felt to bring them to the truth. And now I, t- I talk more than ever with people of, of various ways of looking at the world, spiritual and secular from a place of openness and curiosity, because I don't necessarily have an agenda. And I think what is kind of, if you read between the lines in this section, they're implying that we are going to be having conflict perhaps because people are not going to want to come our way. If we don't have that agenda, then it doesn't bring up the anxiety that they're not going to like what we have to say. If we're really open to learn from them and they feel that, then they're going to listen and we're going to listen to them because we're just, it's an exchange of ideas, not the right people with the right ideas, trying to help the wrong people who have the wrong ideas Mm. come to the right. Does that make sense? Yeah. Makes perfect sense. And so the last, the last statement is a good one. Um, We can be loving towards others, even if we don't agree with their views, because if we don't need them to feel or believe a certain way, then there would be no need to be anything other than loving. Yeah. If only all of us would follow that counsel. So yes. Okay. Moving forward, finding joy in Christ. So it starts with choices matter, choices based on gospel teachings are steps that lead you closer to your heavenly father and Jesus Christ. Jesus said, these things I have spoken unto you that you, that your joy might be full with each step towards him. You will feel closer to the spirit and your covenant relationship with God will become stronger. I mean, I, I don't, I, there are some things I like about that. I think the more we uh, live a Christ-like life, the, the closer we'll feel to God. But I, the thing I guess I, I don't tend to like is why does it begin with choices matter? <laughs> and why doesn't it say love, love matters? matters? Yeah, absolutely. And that if love dictates the lives we choose to live, then we don't need to be given a whole bunch of mandates and prescriptions about what choices to make because love will always carry the day on that. Yeah, I, I, that was the first thing that jumped out at me is, is love matters and love will, will change our choices as we move into love. Um, I also don't really love the idea it says that we will feel closer to God as we move in our covenant relationship with him. Uh, covenant relationship, again, goes back to that implication that we are somehow better than others because we have, uh, you know, these covenants that we that we claim and that others don't claim. And so we're trying to set ourselves up. We are special. Uh, other people can have relationships with God. We have a covenant relationship with God. I, I just I just don't see that. My lived experience doesn't show me that I have any any more claim on God's love than anybody else in this world. The way I think about that, Nathan, is that one thing that helps us solidify relationship with God and each other is embodying some sort of uh, like rituals help us feel more deeply connected to the thing or the entity with whom we are having the ritual. And so those things are beautiful and important. And there are different rituals all throughout the world and all throughout various cultures. And so if we make deep meaning of a ritual because it helps sort of solidify our relationship that we have with the divine or with another, say, for example, in like a wedding ritual, then that is meaningful for us and it's very valuable, but it has less to do with which ritual and which thing that we're doing. If it binds us, it works, it's good. It's binding, but I don't personally think, and I know this might sound a little scandalous, I don't believe that any certain ritual inside of it, that's housed inside of any particular institution or faith is the thing. No, I, I totally agree. And, yeah. and you know, I, I've been through the temple and, and I've made promises to, you know, to do those things, but I got to tell you, I, I don't know that I am any closer to God for having done that than a Native American who participates in a tribal dance, begging the great spirit to bring the buffalo back in the spring and, and, and worshiping the God that they know 
and showing that humility and asking for, you know, the blessings that they need from their, you know, version of their, their image of what God is. I, how, how is mine any better than theirs? I, I just don't see it. And that's what I was getting at Yeah, is, is that I guess, I, I guess what the way to say it is, is that it's all true, right? Yeah. That, that this, that it is true that the temple probably has brought me closer to God. But also I think that a Buddhist in deep meditation is close to God and a Catholic participating in the Eucharist is close to God. And so I, I just see it as all true, just not we're special. It, if it resonates with us, then it's true for us in like a beautiful metaphorical kind of mm. way. Yeah. And, and so, yeah, I, do I respect ritual? Absolutely. But do I think ours is the one and only true? No, I don't. Yeah. Okay. Next paragraph. Okay. But that doesn't mean that the path will be problem free. And since no one walks a perfectly straight line, constantly check your direction and honor God's commandments. I hate that so much. <laughs> That's so like hypervigilant, yeah. uh, religious scrupulosity inducing. Yeah. Sorry. Proceed. <laughs> How do you really feel? <laughs> Don't hold back, Valerie. Keep your covenants with God and prepare to make more. Covenants connect you to Heavenly Father and the Savior. They increase God's power in your life and prepare you to receive eternal life. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I think this is pretty straightforward. Um, like you said, the, there are no straight lines. Uh, there, there are no um, absolute commandments per se that are like, oh, this will bring you to God and this is how you have to look. I just don't believe that. And I don't believe that our set of covenants uh, bring us any closer to God than, than a, you know, a good Muslim who prays three times a day, uh, who's been taught that, that the way they show humility is, is, to, is to point to the East and to, to kneel and pray three times a day. I mean, that's a beautiful, that is a beautiful practice from a people who are quite beautiful. And so I, I just, I don't know. I, I, I get the same sense that you're talking about here. It's like, we're the martyrs. We come from a position of defense and we are the best. And that's why everybody hates us. Mm. I don't, I don't know. It's kind of a sad, not feeling that right. Sort of a sad way to position ourselves. So it's okay. I think to have like some, some increasing critical awareness to be aware of how we came by this mentality and also to be aware, quite frankly, that we do not stand alone in our spiritual exceptionalism. I was actually um, visiting with one of my really close friends who's um, evangelical. And I was sort of saying like, well, we were kind of comparing notes with regards to, to, to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and her, her particular faith tradition. And I said, yeah, but I mean, I think we think we're better. Like I was you know, referring to the LDS Church and she smiled and she says, no, no, you, we think we're better. Let's be honest. <laughs> She's like... We all think we're better. So that made me kind of happy. Yeah, exactly. So we're all delusional. Exactly. Okay. Last paragraph of all possible choices. The one that matters most is the choice to follow Jesus Christ. He is the strength of the youth. His gospel is a joyful way back to your heavenly father. I love most of that. I think Jesus Christ is the thing that brings us strength. And once again, if we are to um, make sure that we're, we're making the gospel be a very large and expansive word. Um, that can bring us back to our, wouldn't it be lovely to end the word, the end the document with back to our heavenly parents. <laughs> so that is, that is that. So what I want to do for the next few minutes, you guys, is I want to offer to you some thoughts and feelings that come directly from the mouth of a woman who is quickly becoming or has quickly become one of my uh, spirit animals. Her name is Frances Menlove. If I'm not mistaken, I believe she was one of the first on the uh, editorial board, on the first editorial board for the Dialogue Journal that began in the 60s. And this is a brilliant woman. I won't go through all of her background, but I will say that when she turned 60 years old, she decided to go get an advanced degree in theology from the Union Theological Seminary at Berkeley in um, in southern or southern not southern in the bay area california where nathan and i actually served our missions i believe you actually served on the berkeley campus am i am i wrong on that i did yes mm -hmm. so what i want to talk to you guys about today is because we've spent the last several episodes with a couple of little you know segues in between we've talked a lot about the idea of having right belief this is the way we believe in this church and this is the pamphlet that kind of breaks it all down and tells you how not only how we believe, but kind of how to believe. And her proposition here in this paper that I'm going to be reviewing with you 
is she's really pushing back and asking us to re-examine our current emphasis on the need for there to be doctrinal unity. Okay, so what I'm going to do to begin this, Nathan, is I want to roll the tape back to 1990-something, and I want you to remember, because you guys remember, we were serving in the same mission. That's where we met in the first place. Do you remember how we would always buy those packages of Dixie Cups and we would we would write down all of the components, the component parts of Jesus Christ's actual, in fact, church. Yes. When he lived in Jerusalem and how he constructed this church. And then before we would sit with our investigators and one by one, we would bring out the principles that he would, that the things that were there, the things that were taught, the things that were believed commonly among everybody. And we would build this cup tower. And then in a dramatic way, we would start removing the cups and if you, there was a child in the discussion, we would remove, we'd have a child remove, you know, the bottom cup or something. And the entire castle would crash down. Mm-hmm. And um, that was the apostasy. Okay. I'm here to say, as I've been reading about this, that entire concept, Nathan Hamaker was bullshit hmm. to take from, what am I remembering it from? To take from the good place. The if good anybody, place. Um, it's, it's getting, uh, it's getting to be winter over here in my part of the country. So. This is last year at Christmas. We actually listened or watched what well, I don't know, all four seasons, all, all 900 yeah. episodes of The Good Place. Yeah. So, but back to my point, it isn't, it, that's not how it went. And this is what um, Men Love talks about. I'm, I will put this in the show notes. She, I'm reading from a book called The Challenge of Honesty by Frances Men Love. And she's really pushing back against this idea that we all have to have a, a unity of belief. So she talks about how when, she went to this um, began theology school. She was told very in her like second lecture that in the last handful of years, we know more about the actual origins of the Jesus movement than we have any time since the first century. And so she was thinking, wow, okay, what can I learn? Or what do, what do I not know? Because I am part of, you know, what she was calling at the time, you know, her restored Christianity church. And she began to get a glimpse of something that she could not have begun to, uh, that she didn't believe. And this, again, we don't stand alone in the LDS church. Many of us, most of us in Christianity did not know this, but I'm going to just do a little bit of reading of, of what she learned. She learned that in early Christianity, there was not a single uniform Christianity. She said there were distinct varieties of the traditions that were developed in different geographical areas, and there was no fixed boundaries about what was orthodox and what was heretical. As a matter of fact, the idea of heresy had not yet even been invented. She goes on to say there was no single correct way for a follower to follow the way or the savior. There was no standardized theology. There was no commonly accepted scripture. There was no uniform policy, no inventories of belief that one had to confess in order to be considered a true Christian. Instead, every Christian focused on Jesus and what it meant to be a follower in the path that he pointed towards. So in essence, she says in early, this early period, there was no one right way to be Christian. It did not exist. And then she quotes two great thinkers. One of them's name is Charles Hendrick. And he says this, there has never been a uniform Christian perspective. From the beginning, diversity was the rule. Those communities, groups, and individuals who cited Jesus as their authority for understanding God, human values, and ethics understood him in conflicting ways. The emergence of orthodoxy in the second century was an attempt to eliminate diversity from Christianity, as were the later developments of canon and creed. But these attempts failed because the New Testament encourages diverse thinking about Christian origins. Men Love goes on to say that the early church was held together without relying on theological agreement. They were all following Jesus and trying to make his message known. Discipleship was not about defending right belief. The popular image of the historical Jesus, whose primitive messages message was to tell his listeners about his role in salvation and to invite them to believe in him has been almost entirely repudiated by modern biblical scholarship. In the first century, the Christian movement was essentially Jewish, actually. The depiction of a pure and undivided early church in which everyone agreed about the nature of the divinity of Christ and exactly how to express it is a myth 
that rose much, arose much later in the Christian church's development. And then as another thinker says, um, Heike Reinsen says this, the future of Christianity was completely open at least for the first two centuries. Okay, so Nathan, mm-hmm. what is this bringing up in you as I read this? What do you make of that? Well, I, it, it makes perfect sense to me because, first of all, the teachings that I read about Jesus in the New Testament were never about actual commandments. They were always about community, right? The, the Sermon on the Mount was a teaching about how to be in community, how to love, how to be the peacemakers, how to be the leaders, um, how to be the light of the world. Um, and so that was really broad. I mean, those were broad teachings about, you know, loving your neighbor and loving God. And, and, and really not a whole lot of detail was ever given by the Savior in, in what that was supposed to look like. Um, the other thing that we know is that Christianity was sort of commandeered by the Roman Empire because they were trying to use it as an element of control. Yes. Right. So Constantine Basically, he's got these Christians and he's got these pagans and he's trying to unify his empire. And, and he sees it. He says, you know, if I could make everybody Christian and kind of bring Christianity into the Roman Empire and make it part of the state, then it becomes a control thing. And so now you got all this, these ideas running around. He's like, well, I don't know how to bring everybody together. So they decide to have a vote. And they, they bring in, you know, some scholars and they bring in some pagans and some philosophers and they start voting on doctrine and they start voting on beliefs. Um, and, and so these kinds of things, the, these these creeds and so forth that evolve were, were completely politically motivated. So I, I am completely of the of the uh, the opinion that what Christ wanted us to do was learn how to love God, self and others, how to live in community. And he was intentionally vague. We have put words in his mouth in many instances around those things. I, I think the other struggle that you have, too, though, is that you know, in, in the ancient Jewish culture, you did have all these laws. Everybody revered Moses and, 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 the, and many of the Jews lived by the law. They lived for the law. And so they were used to that. And it was very hard for them to swallow the idea that Jesus was coming and kind of changing the law. You know, he called it fulfilling the law, but to them that he was sort of tearing down the law. And, and so it's sort of like, hey, well, if you're going to take away the law, you got to give us something else. That's how our little five-year-old minds work. Um and he, he, he's like, well, not really. That's not how we're going to do it. I want you guys to think for yourselves. So on the one hand, you got this people who had been used to living so strictly. And then on the other hand, you had these political influences that were coming in. And as Richard Rohr said, the worst thing that ever happened to spirituality was the development of religion. Um, and, and that's, I, I agree. I, I, I can see exactly where these other scholars are coming from on that. Yes. Yeah, so the formation of, of the church is something that is um, an add-on after Jesus Christ bore, was born and ministered and and died. Mm-hmm. And also, I like what you brought up about the idea that this is not necessarily a Christian problem. This is actually a human problem. We take these ideas and we commandeer them for power, for gain, for money, for control. And then it turns into something and then we slap the name of God on it. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then it becomes, um, it evolves in ways that are not helpful and that actually estrange us from God. And I thought, I, I thought that was fascinating that you, and I'm glad that you brought up the fact that, uh, Judaism followed that same path. As a matter of fact, according to Richard Rohr, pretty much every religion, save the Buddhist faith has always gone this same route. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes they do begin with charismatic leaders that do in fact bring forth truth. But once um, it gets going and it gets growing, then the power enters in, then the ego enters in, then the fallen, wounded human, and oftentimes the fallen, wounded man enters in. Yeah. And then um, these, and then these religious systems oftentimes become uh, they could become instruments and vehicles uh, for power and to um, have power over and to control the people using God. Now that doesn't mean to say that. All religions are necessarily by by default bad, but I think what it does mean is that those of us that uh, want to take advantage of and utilize the goodness that can come from these organized systems, such as the, the way that we serve each other, the way that we come together and commune, the way that we try to hold on to that which can, in fact, bring us closer to God, we have to recognize and have a, some critical awareness about the nature of the engine that runs this mm-hmm. and that mankind human humanity oftentimes takes these things and changes them 
in ways that I think would, I, I would believe makes God weep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anything else you want to add before I move on to this next little part? No, go ahead. Okay. So what, what she goes on to talk about. So first she talks about how Christianity, Jesus's time, Jesus didn't create a church with a church handbook of instructions. Definitely not. <laughs> Red or otherwise. And so that didn't happen. But she also goes on to say, back to the, this idea of this commitment, or do we as a church need to, and is it helpful for us to have such a heavy emphasis on doctrinal unity? She actually would argue that this is even a newer development in our church, in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, which is a very young church. If you look at Christianity at large, which is over 2000 years old. And then you go to the other traditions, which are even older than that. So she says this, Joseph Smith often opposed the dogmatists within the church who, once they got hold of a truth, sought to discourage the creative thought of others who continued to experiment with even newer truths. For Smith, then settling a doctrine once and for all was not nearly as important as spiritual questing. Each person united around certain principles, but then reaching and stretching towards God. So then she goes on to quote a scholar who she um, says is one of Mormonism's most respected moral philosophers. His name is Ephraim Erickson. And he actually does a paper where he proposes that there are three different ethics or three different sensibilities that qualified someone to be as a faithful Latter-day Saint. And these actually changed as time went on. The first way in the earliest of church, the earliest part of the church, To be a loyal Latter-day Saint meant to be loyal to the prophet Joseph Smith and the fledgling church, and you needed to be willing to defend both against outside enemies. That's what it meant. It was not about believing the same thing. It was about defending the man. Okay, Uh, next uh, wave number two was to be a faithful, dedicated member of the Latter-day Saint church. In the second wave, which I can see this definitely evolving in the early Salt Lake period, the Brigham Young period. It had to do with being industrious, unselfish, and being willing to com- to serve in the community to realize its aims. Hmm. So we've got Utah, it's the honeybee state, Deseret, whatnot. And then she talks about a shift um, to a, what did I say? Honeybee state. Oh, that's, that's cute. I like the honeybee state better. <laughs> the beehive state. Yes. Okay. Number three, shift. This third wave of how to be a a righteous and um, good enough Latter-day Saint, uh, Menlove says, is a shift to head-based faith, an emphasis on particular assertions and claims. In this period of time, it really had more to do with what one must do and believe to be considered a faithful Latter-day Saint. Okay. And then, so in, in 1922, this is what this philosopher says. So the third wave really ended a hundred years ago. And I have a question for you about this after. So Erickson goes on to state, faith in church dogma has become a moral virtue, which has grown out of the present social situation. It is the great virtue of today, just as loyalty was the great virtue of the first period and efficiency and industry was the great virtue of the second period of Mormon history. Okay. Hmm. That was a hundred years ago, Nathan Hammaker. What surely we've moved. How, how has this shifted in the last hundred years? We started with just loyalty, to the prophet Joseph Smith and the, and the fledgling church. Then we moved to industry and efficiency. Then we moved to right belief. I'm inclined to, I have a, I have a theory about this because I've been thinking about it. Do you have a theory? Well, just from what you've read, my theory is, is that we've actually reincorporated all three of them again. <clears throat> in in kind of not so great of ways, yeah. right? Yeah. And so to integrate all three, I like the way you're saying that. I think we have um, a bit of a, a, a overzealous, perhaps even a little bit of a, I'm trying to be gentle about this. <laughs> what am I trying to say? Uh, back to the follow the prophet, mm-hmm. almost like a maniacal right. obsession with that. Right. Go ahead. <laughs> Well, and then we reintroduced church correlation when we thought that maybe things had become a little too liberal and and, and people were having their own thoughts and the Relief Society might be having some of their own original thoughts. And we didn't want that. So we went ahead and had some church correlation that brought everybody back into this mindset of efficiency. Yep. Um, And we still pound the drum of church dogma and right belief. So So I, I, I think we've just incorporated the worst of all three of those back into our into our current situation so what you're describing nathan 
I think I agree with is that that sounds, yeah, in some ways the worst of all three, meaning that is any one of those three standalone fundamentally evil? No, <laughs> right? We need leadership. We want good leadership, inspired leadership. So having a leader fundamentally is a neutral experience. Having um, industry and efficiency in and of itself is not a bad thing unless it is sort of, it trumps all other things. And then also uh, belief, if it's, if it's the most important thing over love, then that is a problem. She actually goes on to talk about this very thing. She says, I'm going to, I'm going to riff off of what you barely, barely just said about this idea of um, the importance of like, you can't throw beliefs, ideas out the window, right? Or we wouldn't have an institution at all, but she actually addresses that. This is back to men love. She says this. Ideas can be both true and important. We must, however, remain humble about them. Inasmuch as conceptualization is involved at all, our goals must be faithfulness to the closest approximation of truth for which our minds are capable. But it is essential to realize always that these conceptualizations are nevertheless still approximations to the truth, not the truth itself. And to see always the many ways they are conditioned by our contexts our place, and our time. Theology matters. Yes, it is important. However, to recognize that beliefs can sometimes get in the way of our ability to develop genuine, loving, enriching faith. Theological accuracy is not the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Any thoughts on that, Nathan? No, I, I think that's really well said. We just, we, we've made the gospel into something that it never originally was. Yes. And so she talks a little bit about how important it would be for us to get away from this, this need for uni unity of doctrine and really look at how to just deepen our faith in learning how to love God and love one another better. And so she talks about personally how this has worked for her. She says, I think my faith has changed and deepened and become much richer and more consistent with the complexities of the human experience. She also says faith that grows richer as we develop deeper understanding of God's and of God and humans, even if this means we might have to modify our beliefs so that they can embody greater complexity is the kind of faith that I am talking about. So what she's doing here is she's encouraging us to become more, more committed to love, more committed to finding our own truth by coming closer to God. And being less worried about what everyone believes and that we all believe the same thing. Okay, the final thing I want to read is just a couple more things. So just hang in there with me because this is beautiful. This is her proposition. She says, this is where I think I would like our church to go. What if faith, rather than propositional believing, took center stage as the fundamental religious category? The LDS Church has already has a head start in this direction through its emphasis on works as well as faith. The notion that our beliefs must translate into compassion and service that flows from a transformed character. Perhaps it won't be all that hard for Latter-day Saints to remember this when faced with other traditions or the misspeaking leaders who seem to forget this as they worry about protecting us from thinking and exploring, preaching instead that there is safety in the staid formulations. Mormons recognize how everything is ultimately left to individual free agency. Not even God can coerce our assent. What if we Mormons concentrated on nourishing faith in our community, already a strong suit, cooled it a bit on reinforcing the notion that believing is primarily what religious people do, and cooled it a bit on policing beliefs, which as recent history has shown is a perilous pursuit. Correlation, excommunication, and leaders warning us to beware of science science, reason, and the intellectuals. We can do better than that. She says, what is disastrous in a church is a list of not negotiable beliefs, beliefs that become fences, boundary markers between those who are in and those who are out. What is disastrous is discouraging Latter-day Saints from using all of their faculties, not only their heart, their mites, and their strengths, but also their minds to better understand our world and God's workings in it and for us. What is disastrous for us would be to deny mystery and to attempt to fill the void with cognitive certainty. What is disastrous for us would be to replace faith in Jesus Christ with church doctrines. What is disastrous is to assert that those who believe particular doctrines have faith and those who do not believe the same way do not have faith. Hmm. 
The Jesus movement flourished without theological agreement, without an inventory of beliefs. This warrants courage for us today. Okay, so this is um, this is Francis Menlove's thoughts and feelings about this. Nathan, I want you to just um, round us out, if you would, on on what does this bring up in you as far as this this idea that even though we've spent seven sessions mm-hmm. <laughs> um, on talking about the For the Strength of the Youth pamphlet, which is our How to Believe and Live statement, that what she's actually proposing as the is as is she said it that we cool it off a little bit and not worry so much about that at all. What do you think about that? Well, I, I think it's terrific advice. I think we've touched on principles like that as as we've gone through uh this, but you know, there there's I go back to our article of faith that says we claim the privilege of worshiping Almighty God according to the dictates of our own conscience and allow all people the same privilege. Let them worship how, what, and where they may. And that is something that we actually don't do within our own church. I hear people quoting in Ephesians where it says that, you know, we have prophets and apostles so that we can all come to the unity of faith. And what I heard in her writings is what I agree with. Faith does not mean dogma. It's not the same. We don't have to come to a unity of exact, correct belief and behavior. Faith is a way of living. It's a way of thinking. It's a way of feeling. It's a way of seeing people around us. It's not a prescribed set of rules. And so church members frequently, uh, myself included, got confused on that scripture when we would teach as missionaries, especially say, well, you know, we all have to be of the same faith, which means we'll have to be part of the same church. And and what she's really saying and, and what Christ was really saying with that and, and, and Paul, who wrote the letter, is saying that we have to come to a unity in our humanity. We have to learn to live and to love and to be unified in that love, not in how we look, how we talk, the language we speak, the country we belong to, or even the set of beliefs that we follow. So yes, I, I am absolutely 100% on, on board with that, that point of view. I think there are some things that help us to stay safe, but I also think that we way over-prescribe what it looks like to be righteous. Well, and I think the more, the closer we come into relationship with, with God, our parents and our savior, Jesus Christ, the safer we become and the choices that we make actually are in keeping with what it means to be in close connection with God, because the God within us grows and grows and grows. Yeah. And the, and we don't need an institution to tell us what not to do, because most of the time when they do that without cultivating within us wisdom, maturity, true knowledge, understanding, compassion, empathy. If it's just, if the rule is thrown at us without the cultivation of all of these other things, oftentimes the rule isn't obeyed anyways, or even if it's disobeyed and some punishment is exacted or threatened, we don't even actually do the learning. Whereas when we are gifted with this um, different way of seeing that we are trying to come into unity as a body to become more in faith, more growth oriented, more trying to become more like God, we don't need all of those roles because that is the nature of what it means to be more like God. Mm-hmm. We are more, we we become like God. Right. Your soul knows. Yes, and the soul knows. Our dispositions change, and it has less to do with belief and more to do with communion and supporting others in their in their journey, in their growth, in their process. And that, my friends, is what we want to achieve here on this world. And because this happens to be the church that we belong to, we're committed to doing this alongside you and with you and helping you um, feel like you can become a part of this way of thinking and feeling and feeling that you truly belong because belonging has has only to do with knowing that you are part of the body of Christ, which is you are a child of God. And that's all that matters. So, okay, we are officially, officially done with the strength of the youth um, episodes for you. Um, It's been such a pleasure to be able to work with you, each of you out there and on at your side. Nathan. <laughs> Thank you. It's been fun. Yeah, it has been fun. We have really, gosh, we've never um, spent so much time on one piece of church material, <laughs> I think, at least in a concentrated manner. So my goodness, we are not lazy learners by golly. <laughs> Far from it. Okay. Love you all. Thank you all for hanging in there with us. We will be back next time. And as per usual, if you are willing and wanting to help us with this podcast, with its growth, please, please, please pause and write a positive review and give us a 
five-star rating. Um, most of the reviews are incredibly beautiful, um, uplifting and positive, but we do have some, some folks out there that are not very kind and not very supportive. And they also tend to be the ones that have written some of the reviews. So would you please offset those with um, your own personal faith expansion experiences? That would mean ever so much to me. And it helps other people trust uh, the, the commitment and the heart that we put into this work. Also, if you're someone who would like to become more involved in a community of people processing and working through the content and um, the philosophies that Nathan and I talk about on this podcast a couple times a week, please reach out to me at info at ValerieHammaker.com or on Instagram at Latter-day Struggles Podcast to get more information about joining a space-limited small group. I have several going and a wait list for several more. And also, if you're interested in private coaching, I am doing a few time-limited private individual sessions with people that are interested. And I also have people working for me that are open for not time-limited coaching and or therapy. So let me know there from um, also catch us at info at ValerieHammaker.com and or Instagram at Latter-day Struggles Podcast. Okay, that is a wrap. See you guys later. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.